0: No. Hello and welcome to this episode of Irreligiosity 2.0, the one true podcast, and the only podcast. Ah, fuck it, fuck that it. Da- I'm just too fucking tired. I don't care. Yeah, the only podcast of whatever the fuck you want.
1: We're not even fucking doing this part. We're going right into it. Get right into it, Chuck.
0: Fuck taglines.
1: Right into the skunk dicks. It's not. I got a dick. That's not just a dick. It's a wooden dick.
0: A wooden dick?
1: It's a wooden dick. You got some wood? I, I got wood, I've got dick, and I've got it in Sweden. Again, again, Sweden, with your penises and your dicks. It's starting to become a thing over there, I think. Uh, but Chuck, this, this dick does not just appear and say, hey, look at me. It asked you to solve its mystery. Can you solve the mystery of a giant wooden penis found in
0: Sweden? What say you? Uh, I don't think there is a mystery. What's the mystery? The,
1: <laughs> so, the mystery
0: is we don't find giant wooden penises everywhere.
1: We don't. And when we do, we can say like, huh, I wonder where that came from. Yeah, that makes sense. Before I speak any further, I just have to say that I'm going to butcher every single like Swedish name and town name in this story. Just no, so we're all clear. Okay? No
0: apologies. If Sweden the- wanted us to pronounce their names correctly, they would have made them fucking easy to pronounce.
1: Right. They they put their names in English. It's right? really yeah.
0: their own fault. Yeah.
1: Yeah. But uh, in the town of Hagfors, Hagfors, in the Varmland region in western Sweden, uh, people have found a giant wooden penis. Yeah. In Blinkensburg Park. That's a place. It's a real place.
0: Yeah, right. Matt, you, you know, yeah. If you got a you got a knife and a long straight piece of wood, you, you just carve a penis. It's it's human nature.
1: Uh, now, Natalie Anderson from the Hagsford municipality had this. I don't know why I think this comment is so funny, but talking to her local paper, she said, "We got a phone call from a resident who was visiting Lincolnsburg Park. She explained there was a really huge penis sitting on a tree <laughs> in the middle of the park." <laughs> Our employees in the area went straight to the place to investigate. And sure enough, there it was. You know, like you do. (laughs)
0: Like, I got this
1: one. That's my call. (laughs) And then she finished the statement with, it was over a meter long and very well made. Excellent. Possibly trying it out
0: herself. Made with love and care.
1: Now, Chuck, the best part of the story, it's not the first time that mysterious wooden penises just... (laughs) Appear in hogs for? Of course not. <laughs> Apparently, an enthusiast has been leaving these things lying around <laughs> for
0: a while. <laughs> a penis enthusiast. <laughs> However, it is important to note that
1: the paper reported this: that this one, by far, had the biggest length and girth. Biggest, okay. It's the best. <laughs> uh, the, another, another statement from the uh, municipality. It's not the first wooden penis we found, but it's absolutely the biggest. <laughs> we, we tend to find the penises here and there, often in the forest or near swimming po- spots. But this time, there is a huge penis sitting right in the middle of central hog floors <laughs> in a popular park. All the penises are very well made, and the person who makes them has been putting a lot of effort into it. Sometimes they're lacquered.
0: Sometimes they're wow. painted. <laughs> So you make a penis, then you lacquer it.
1: Oh yeah, you lacquer the shit out of that.
0: penis. Lacquer that penis up.
1: I'll be lacquering my penis later on. Um, now Very. it's not.
0: I love how they <laughs> they comment on the craftsmanship of the penis. Yeah, it's, it's a it fine penis. penis. <laughs>
1: Have you <laughs> noticed just length some and throwaway girth? dildo? <laughs> oh, I saw the picture and I'm like. I don't think this would make a very good do- dildo. That'd be a little scary, you know. Although it is lacquered, so that could reduce yeah. the incidence of splintering. It keeps the,
0: sp- keeps the splinters down. <laughs> oh, it's A nice coat of lacquer.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and finally, they're still looking for the owner. If they've said, it'd be great to meet the person behind this creative piece of art, so far yes. we've got the penis in the municipality's central office. Um, yes, that's where we're keeping it. I'm keeping it in my office desk drawer, just in case. Um, if the owner wants it back, it's there in safe storage.
0: You got it. I, I would also like to invite the uh, person who is crafting all of these well-made penises onto irreligiosity. I'd <laughs> yes. love to sit down and, and talk to this person.
1: <laughs> Free invite. Oh. Uh, in other news, Chuck, I've got a new corner.
0: A new one? Wasn't that a just a corner?
1: One. It's Matt's Arthurian Corner!
0: Oh, wow. Yes. It's uh, King Arthur come back? It's Returned in, in England's greatest time of need just before he, they yes. Brexit the fuck out of the European Union.
1: Yes, but with one caveat he is a
0: she. Oh, Queen Arthur.
1: No, it's still King, because whoever. Well, here's the story. So, in uh, Cornwall, England, at the waters, the fabled waters of Dawesbury Pool, where Excalibur lies, whoever finds Excalibur or something, something, we don't need no details, it becomes king, right?
0: So, it doesn't matter who pulls it
1: out, they're king. So, what what happened... That's ridiculous. I thought it was
0: embedded in a stone somewhere.
1: uh, It doesn't... uh, So, Matilda Jones uh, was there with her family. She saw something in the water, and they... Pulled it out of the water, and it turned out to be a big giant sword. Oh. Big giant claymore. Did
0: she's king start? of England.
1: She's the king, Chuck. So she's king.
0: She's king. Well, I didn't vote for her.
1: You don't vote for kings.
0: Uh, how'd she become king then?
1: The lady of the lake, Chuck. Her arm clad in the pure shimmering samite held aloft Excalibur from the bosom of the water, signifying by divine providence that she, Matilda, was to carry Excalibur. That! is why she is your king.
0: Listen, strange woman lying around in ponds distributing swords is no basis for a system of government. Supreme executive power derives from a mandate for the masses, not from some farcical aquatic ceremony.
1: Oh, fine then. Still better than our system.
0: So. Jesus Christ, it is. <laughs> uh, actually, I, I would like to invite Matilda over to the United yes. States to become our king.
1: Uh, you are our king. Oh, hail Matilda. Now, it turns out um, they think it's really just like a movie prop they got left around from one of those countless, I don't know. They made another King Arthur movie with was that Sons of Anarchy Pacific Rim guy. But I didn't see it. So. Oh, was it filmed on location? <laughs> uh, possibly. <laughs> know, they're always filming sword stuff over there. Um. Yeah, that's it. She's come be our king. I'll support you,
0: King of England uh, and America. It is not possible yes. that she does a worse job than our current <laughs> occupant. It
1: would be. She could do nothing but a better job. Matter of fact, I think maybe like a like a seven year old girl would probably be the best president we could have.
0: I'm willing to give it a try.
1: Right? <laughs>
0: yeah. Let's. Hey, don't
1: be mean to people. Not bad. Not bad. Hey, I like it. Hey. It's
0: an improve. It's a step up. <laughs> it's a step up.
1: <laughs> oh. Chuck, our final, our final dick of today to to skip corners and go straight to dick. This is a preemptive dick because we've we've actually talked about this before and it's not decided yet. But we're all familiar with the uh with the Colorado case of cake maker versus uh gay people, I believe it's called. Or yeah. a Masterpiece Cake Shop versus the Colorado Civil Rights Commission. Right? Um, Going to the Supreme same, Court. Same thing. Well, on Thursday... Hey, that's uh, today. Oh, no, that was yesterday. Yes, uh, the Department of Justice... Well, you know what? It could be like a month ago by the time you listen to this, yeah, so right, exactly. who cares? <laughs> uh, the Department of Justice filed a brief on behalf of Baker Jack Phillips, who... Uh, was found to violate the Colorado Anti-Discrimination Act. We all know the story by refusing to bake a cake for um, is Charlie Craig and David Mullins. This is back in t- 2012 when this happened. I don't crank wedding cakes for same-sex couples because it would violate my religious beliefs. So the DOJ's brief basically grieves them, and he they take the the case that a cake is a form of expression, and you cannot be killed. <laughs> You cannot be compelled to use your talents for something in which you do not believe. So cake is art, Chuck, and by having him fulfill his bakery duties, he would be forced to participate in a ceremony that violates his sincerely held religious belief and his First Amendment rights.
0: Yeah, it's not uh, freedom of expression because uh, he's free to express that, right? So we're not really infringing on his freedom of speech. Uh, apparently we're compelling him to speech.
1: Yeah. I like, I like how nobody's forcing him to bake cakes except himself. <laughs> That's what you chose to do. You yeah. chose to open a public shop where people can come and get a cake for their wedding. Yeah. You know, nobody's forcing him. He's not being compelled. He's got customers. They're called customers. <laughs> They order cakes and you make them for them. Now I know businesses have like we refuse we reserve the right to service to anyone, right? You ever see that placard stuck yep. in businesses? That's for like a drunk guy coming in and be like, "Give me some cake, bitches! I need some cake." You could reasonably say like, "I'm not making you a cake. You're just a drunken idiot."
0: But a legitimate customer.
1: Now we're just going to say Matt.
0: was. <laughs> His drunkenness fueled by sincerely held religious beliefs, right, because right. that is fucking discrimination.
1: What if my sincerely held religious belief is the four asshole bakers that bake me cakes for no reason? <laughs> that Whose is religious like, beliefs trump on the that,
0: that will never go to court, because it's like an immovable <laughs> object coming into contact with an irresistible force.
1: Oh, we just lock horns like right on the counter, and I'd never be able to leave. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be some sort of Sisyphus, Sisyphus, Sisyphusian. What's that guy's name? Sisyphus? Sisyphus. Was he the one pushing the rock uphill?
0: I don't know. It sounds it, right.
1: And then it breaks and it goes down and then crows eat his guts mm-hmm. all day long. For,
0: for some reason, yeah. I think
1: so. Yeah. So, yay! Department of Justice! Thank you.
0: Hooray! Right. Yeah, yeah right that sure. Hobby Lobby decision about sincerely held religious beliefs. Uh, just applied to closely held corporations. There's no chance that that'll right. be uh broadened no by chance. lower courts.
1: I also like their 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 like their take on this. That the DOJ that that cake making is a is a form of expression. It's it's like art. Now I know there's like like those cake shows on TV where they where yeah they're making some pretty cool cakes. But seriously, we're gonna say food prep is now a form of protected expression so this any asshole now in any restaurant say, you know my burgers are a form of my artistic beef expression
0: yes and i can't <laughs> cook them for gays <laughs> I can't, I
1: can't. or or when is this going to happen or black people right or asians
0: or jews or latinos or or, uh, or nazis not neo-nazis that's okay that's all right. You can. Oh yeah, neo Nazis
1: would be okay. That's this right. guy would have no problem making a you know He'd probably make a nice Hitler cake, A little swastika. It's fine. That.
2: fine. That's okay,
1: long as they're not gay. Seriously, oh Chuck, guy making wedding cakes. It's his artistic expression. It's a little gay. That's okay. So, just saying.
0: Yeah, making wedding cakes, pretty
1: gay. And that's that's all right. Don't wanna. I'm not judging.
0: Just saying, you know, he might want to rethink I'm just not paying for it, because it's gay. (laughs) And as we all know, money money is uh, expression. The court also decided that.
1: Money is free speech. Oh, yeah. Cakes are free speech now, also.
0: All right, Matt, let's uh, move on to the meat of the podcast.
1: Yes. An interview! Yay! Everybody's favorite episode.
0: So, Matt, today we have... uh, Guest interview. Um, This is David Madison. He is a PhD. Is that in biblical studies? Yes, it is. PhD in biblical studies. PhD, impressive. Yeah. Uh, And uh, unfortunately, it's in biblical studies. So that kind of.
2: But it's not from the uh, North Kentucky Bible School. (laughs)
1: Liberty University? No, no, no.
2: It is from Boston University. Uh, graduate school. So
0: that's An not too shabby. Accredited institution. Right. Mm. That sounds suspiciously like something real. So. <laughs> <laughs> not too shabby. And uh, you were uh, at some point a minister or a pastor. You actually uh, pastored a flock of believing Christians.
2: <laughs> yes. Um, that was for nine years. Nine years. Uh, nine that- years. at that time, in the 19, uh, late 60s, 1970s, in order to, it was just a thing, when you were working for a graduate degree in biblical studies, you became a a minister, and this was a Methodist uh, university, Um, at least was founded as such, it's secular now, uh, I'm sure. I was born and raised a Methodist in northern Indiana, Uh, how exciting is that? So, uh, I had always intended on a career in academia, but I had to go through the drill of becoming an ordained pastor. And to support myself and my family, I had to, uh, I had to be assigned to a church. I was fact assigned to two churches.
0: Now, um, in the prologue of the, of the book that you've read, Matty's written a book called uh, Ten Tough Problems in Christianity." Is that right? Ten tough problems in Christian thought and beliefs, and basically why you should leave the Christian faith. <laughs>
2: Actually, I used the word ditch.
0: Ditch. <laughs> Even better. Even better. Um, and it th- a minister in, turned atheist, right. It, well, in the prologue, it kind of uh, describes all of this stuff. And at this point, would you say you had um, completely lost your faith when you were a minister? You were a minister of the flock. Had you completely lost it or well on your way?
2: Well, I was well on my way. Um by the time I finished uh, the Ph.D., by the time I wrapped that up, you know, I was clinging on for dear life to, uh, to Christianity. As I explained, the, uh, the theologian, he spoke of God as being the ground of all being. Well, doesn't that sound grand? Um, so that's what I could cling to, to some esoteric uh, concept of God. Of course, all the people in the pews wouldn't have had a clue what I was talking about. Right. For them, God was the man upstairs, their their cosmic buddy that they could pray to and ask ask help from. So we were really on two different planets as far as theology was concerned. And I at the time, and still unfortunately, the Methodist Church is not very gay friendly. And I knew that being gay and being being an atheist didn't go over very well with the Methodist bureaucracy. So,
1: so who would have a problem with a gay atheist? <laughs>
2: <laughs> so i had to make my escape but as dan savage has said i didn't lose my faith i saw through it yeah and part of that process was what you learn in seminary um it was one of the you know collateral damage i suppose you could say because seminaries exist to manufacture clergy They're, they don't exist to manufacture atheists um right but um you know you learn things and you say wait a minute, this." This doesn't make sense. Uh, this doesn't add up. And some people just smother those thoughts and forge ahead, believing what they believe. And um, with others of us. And there, there were a few in my class that came to the same conclusion. You know, so. When
1: you, when you were a minister, did you ever have people coming to you with questions like that?
2: Not so much, really. The faithful members of the flock who attended church every Sunday. They weren't prone to doubts that they would express out loud. So I never had anybody really coming to me struggling with the faith. No, that that, that wasn't too common a phenomenon.
1: Because I had I had those questions like when I was in youth group and the- Really unsatisfactory answers is all I ever got from it. <laughs> of, course.
2: of course they're unsatisfactory. Well I,
1: plat- well, I mean like not just not even like good ex, but not even like a good apologist answer. Mostly just like because because God loves you. That's what you gotta remember. It's like oh it's
2: a mystery. It's a mystery, <laughs> just accept it. Thanks. There are things not to understand. We just have to accept them. That's what
0: faith <laughs> is all about. That's right. Sure. Yeah. Um, and you grew up uh, in, was it Indiana? You grew up as in, a gay man in Indiana. Yeah. Tell us about that.
2: Well, you know, it's a, a very odd thing. I never had any guilt about being gay, about feeling tr- attracted to other boys in the school. Uh, I never felt guilt about that. But certainly in northern Indiana, you get the message that there's something really wrong with that. Uh, <laughs> right, and Not that my parents would ever have said anything, I don't remember them ever saying anything overtly, quote-unquote, anti-gay. It just, there were no gay people in our small town. Uh, Yeah, right. Uh, Because they weren't visible, because they remained closeted.
0: Out of of self-preservation, yeah, sure.
2: So, I just knew, at some point, this was an aspect of my personality that I had to suppress. I had to say, no, I can't do that, I can't go there so that's what I did
0: but so you are able it's interesting you were able to suppress that uh, kind of fundamental core part of your uh, being but you weren't able to suppress your doubts and skepticism about religion
2: well I was able to suppress the sexuality issue for a while but after nine, ten years in a straight marriage then and too many things came together to conspire against me putting up that forever um uh, but, you know, it doesn't take too many things to really plant dramatic seeds of doubt about the faith. And then when you begin to really pursue those questions, then the, the faith unravels.
0: Well, take us through that process, because you, you describe your mother as a voracious reader, and uh, <laughs> you had tons and tons of access to, to books, all, of course, religious. There, were, there was no skeptical books or atheist books. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, in that environment, uh, what what happened to kind of put cracks in the faith?
2: The cracks really began to appear, I guess I would say, in seminary, oddly enough.
0: So you made it all the way uh, through college with a fairly intact... Okay. But, of course, your belief isn't your typical fundamental evangelical belief. You, your parents accepted evolution, didn't have a problem with science, right? That may have been the first problem. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, a no problem I had, with evolution and science. Um and so your your belief at the very beginning was a little more complicated than your typical Protestant evangelical fundamentalist Christian.
2: Yeah, I had oddly enough growing up in uh, conservative northern Indiana, I really didn't bump up against real uh, scary fundamentalists until I went away to Indiana University
0: <laughs> in college.
2: For the first time, I met members of the Varsity Christian Fellowship, which is still alive and well, as far as I know. And these were these were Bible-believing, infallible Word of God Bible believers. And I thought, these people are really strange. How can anybody believe that? I talk in the book about my mother buying the Interpreter's Bible, a 12-volume set. Yep. And this was a product of world liberal Protestant scholarship. And the scholars who put it out were not fundamentalists. So I learned to become very well acquainted with liberal Protestantism and the whole concept of of taking the Bible literally, was just so weird to me. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. But my mother would say, my mother, a very devout woman would say, well, you can't literally. Um, (laughs) She would say that about this or that passage in the Bible. She had made the adjustment. She had made the, the change in thinking, and my reaction to the fundamentalists of college was, well, they'll grow out of it. Uh, Of course, they don't do that.
1: God, it gets, gets worse sometimes.
2: It gets worse. And when I was in college and had come up against these people, that's when I really, I resolved not to engage with these people because they're not interested in dialogue. They're not interested in examining. They're interested in preaching. They're interested yeah. in spreading their certainty. So after just a few conversations with these folks, I said, this, this is not worth it. It's not worth the energy to try to talk to these people. There has to be another audience. Uh, and I, I follow that policy to this day. On the Facebook page for my book, conservative Christians drop in to, to rant and rave and complain about what I've said. And they come up with the standard arguments that have been dispelled ages ago. Why would I waste a minute talking to those people? It's, right. it's it's futile. It's a waste of time. It's there are never
0: other... ending. Yeah, it's never ending. Uh, you just never starts. You can go as far down that rabbit hole as you want. It's uh, over and over and over again. It's just it's, no, it's it is a waste of time.
2: I don't do it. Someone said to me, "Oh, you should try to get a debate with William Lane Craig." No, and I said, "What? Why would I do that? It's just no
0: it's not
2: worth for it.
1: the spectacle." <laughs> <spectacle>, damn it. <laughs> well,
2: You know he has debated with Sean Carroll, and it doesn't get through to his brain.
0: No, the Sean Carroll debate with William Lane Craig was actually fairly illuminating for me. Uh, it, uh, it seemed like William Lane Craig lost that debate hands down, and it doesn't phase him. Like uh, no, you know. He'll just nope. go the next debate and hope that that person uh, doesn't say the same things that Sean Carroll did in the last debate. His argument never changes. He, they're never phased by. They're never even rattled, really. No, it's,
2: his brain is wired permanently yep. to reach. I mean, he's a professional apologist. That's why he. That's why he has his job.
0: Right. Uh, it's You know the the audience of the debate. Maybe those those seeds, the cracks that you're talking about. Um, you can plant seeds, I suppose, in the audience of the debate, and those seeds may not manifest yeah. for years later.
1: Those, that's your only hope Yeah, my,
0: For me, it, what you're talking about that you started out with, the idea that you could take some things in the Bible metaphorically or, or not literally was the first crack for me. Like, oh, hmm. there may not have been a literal Adam and Eve. Oh, okay, well, if you take that lit- uh, metaphorically, then... What and the end game of that is the entire thing's a metaphor, and then your faith kind of crumbles. Huh.
1: Right, I love I love that. Like you, know, you can't take that literally. It's like, how do you decide which part you take literally? Where's the-, the whole?
0: For years, <laughs> right, I struggled with that. Like, oh, you know, I'll take this literally, but not that, and this is literally not that, and and eventually, it's just it's ridiculous. You, there's no standard. The standard is I'm uncomfortable with this, or it seems patently absurd. Uh, right. talking snakes or, you know, talking donkeys. Um, but then you start thinking, well, the miracles are kind of in the same category. Those are absurd as well. You di- once you ditch the miracles, and what's the point? The rest of it is just Bronze Age morality.
2: Yeah. We, we have evolved our own moral standards. People say, where do you get your morality if you don't use the Bible? Right. <laughs> I mean, give me a break. Uh, secular ethicists have been debating morals for millennia.
0: These people who say where to get their morality, uh, if not from the Bible, have either not read the Bible or uh, are being extremely selective about where they choose to glean their morality. I mean, it. it I'm not sure it ever explicitly recommends slavery, but it regulates it. <laughs> it never says it's bad. And the whole <laughs> model for Christianity is a slave-master relationship. Um,
2: <laughs> yeah, it, it, of course. Uh, and the, where do you get your morality if not from the Bible? I say, well, let's read Luke fourteen twenty six. Jesus says that you cannot be my disciple unless you hate your mother, your father, your family, your <laughs> brothers and your sisters and your indeed your whole life. Now, is that the morality you follow?
1: Right. Right. I, exactly. I, I well,
2: you're not
1: supposed to take that part literally. <laughs> <laughs> not that part. Eck yeah.
2: Avalos has a 40 39-page chapter in his book, The Bad Jesus, about that text. Wow. And why wow. the word hate means exactly what it says. Because Christian apologists twist themselves into pretzels to try to deal with that text. So
0: um Right, because Christianity is all about family values, right? Loving your family. <laughs> yeah. Jesus talks multiple times about. You know, I've come to uh, sever family relationships, right? Your mother will be set against a daughter, father against a son, in laws against him, et cetera, et cetera.
2: Et cetera, et cetera. Um, yeah, he doesn't get high marks as a, as a family friendly guy.
1: <laughs>
2: but, right. but as Bert, uh, Bart Ehrman has pointed out, people design the Jesus of their imagination. Sure. That's. And that's what they believe in. And certainly the Catholic Church does not want people to read the Bible, does not encourage them to read the Bible like the Protestants do. Right. Because they don't they don't want people coming across these troubling texts.
0: Right. That was one of the sources of Protestantism itself, was the fact that the Catholic Church would read this stuff in Latin and then explain it to you. <laughs> And the Protestants <laughs> wanted one of that scripture translated in English so it's accessible to everybody. You don't have to have a mediator. Uh, but it, yeah, it turns out to be not such a good idea if you read the Bible unvarnished without someone there over your shoulder to tell you exactly why this doesn't mean what it says.
2: After my book was published, uh, John Loftus, who I'm sure you know, yeah. he invited me to be one of the writing team for the Debunking Christianity blog, and the piece I'm planning to write for, uh, I post every Friday, the one I'm writing for next Friday is going to have the title Where the Bible Gets It Really Wrong, Ten of St. Paul's Nuttiest Quotes. Uh, <laughs> they, don't, they really don't want the faithful reading Paul except for the famous Hallmark moments, uh, love right. is patient and kind, etc., etc., but you read the letters of Paul, which are very difficult to read. Most lay people don't even try to plow through them. Uh, and reading the Bible a chapter a day to get through it all becomes a real chore when you're trying to read the letters of Paul. But he has so many really nutty things to say, and people would, look, would read these and say, you got to be kidding. This guy's an idiot.
0: There's a whole, cha- I think the last chapter of your ten problems is Paul.
2: It is Paul, exactly. But what, that's um, just. Go ahead.
0: I was going to say, what uh, brought you to? Uh, so you went through seminary. You uh, saw through the delusion. Um, and this is one of my favorite. My some of my favorite um, atheists are former pastors. Uh, Dan Barker's one of my favorites. Absolutely. John Loftus wasn't he a former?
2: Absolutely. And uh, Kenneth Daniels. You've got uh, Jason Eden. You've got uh, Fernando Alcantar. Anthony Penn. And uh, Charles Templeton used to be Billy Graham's sidekick.
0: <laughs> is He's that uh, right?
2: He gave up the Christian faith way back in the sixties or seventies. He didn't publish his book till nineteen ninety, ninety two, or ninety six. Why I rejected the Christian faith—that's the title, or close to it. Yeah, there. In fact, one of the reasons I had difficulty getting my book published was that agents would say that bookshelf is full. You know, of course. <laughs> Talking about not only the pastors, ex-pastors turned atheists, but also uh, the major blockbuster books by Dawkins and Hitchens and Harris, Uh, and a slew of others, I now have on my website a section called The Cure for Christianity Library, and I have there over 200 titles of books that have been published, mainly since the year 2000. I call it The Atheist Publishing Boom or The Atheist Publishing Surge, and so, the, you know, there's no dearth of resources for people who want to explore non-belief and why we arrive at it.
0: Yeah, you trace some of that uh, atheist publishing in your book as well, and uh, it's really not, I guess, the volume uh, is more. The, the arguments themselves are, are, there's not a whole lot of new arguments uh, from even That's- the pagans that, or certainly like Robert Ingersoll a couple hundred years ago. Um, uh, Russell,
2: the arguments don't have to be new, but it's important to hear the new voices. Yeah. What was your experience that brought you to say, this doesn't make sense. And the, the shades and the nuances and the, the life examples, the life stories are all going to be different. So, uh, yeah. Who, who can come up with a new argument to deflate belief in God? Well, I don't know that there are any new arguments, but there are new ways of positioning it, explaining it, telling how the individual comes to that conclusion. What is his journey? What's the story of his life that makes that happen? That's why it's, you know, I, I enjoy reading these stories when they come up.
0: Yeah, one of the books you reference um, was um, about the resurrection, uh, uh, The Empty Tomb by Robert Price. Very good. Um, Richard Carrier has a chapter, it's over 100 pages, about the spiritual body versus the body of flesh, and and Paul's belief in the resurrection of Jesus' spiritual body. Um, Mm -hmm. And Carrier's good, but he can get uh, to be a little dense reading sometimes. Uh, Your your entire book is very, very readable. Uh, I'd strongly recommend it um, to people, especially people who uh haven't read some of this other stuff and slogged through it because yours is a nice uh overview of a lot of the scholarship and it's it's a lot more readable than some of the other stuff that's out there
2: well my goal you know barbara Tuckman, the great historian who won the pulitzer prize twice she said when she writes her basic rule of thumb is will the reader want to turn the page
0: yeah and you succeed
2: my goal, above all, was to present a book that was readable. Now, I've been criticized for using too much ridicule, too much sarcasm. Well, get over it. You know, that's just part of my approach, to use ridicule and to use uh, sarcasm. Because, I mean, there are many people who who will be turned off by that. But there are many other people who, it's, there's a good zing here and, here and there now and then will... We'll make them sit up and take notice. Um, so I want it to be entertaining. That was one of my goals.
0: Yeah, it's readable. It's entertaining, absolutely. You won't find any criticism from us about sarcasm or ridicule. For me, <laughs> um, it, it, that is a response for me out of just personal frustration. Um, the fact that, all of the, as you mentioned, all of the scholarships out there, all of the arguments are out there. All of the uh, arguments for Christianity have been debunked long, long ago. Uh, and so the fact that we're still hearing these uh, shitty arguments, really, for Christianity, as if they've never been debunked or addressed uh, again and again, over and over again, it just gets very frustrating. And so you get to the point where... Um, you know, if you still believe in Christianity, it seems like it's either you're hardwired that way, or you have a lot invested in it, such as, you know, you can, people have entire lives invested in this stuff, um, and there's no way that they're going to change their mind on it, or it's just, it just shows a remarkable lack of curiosity. You mention again in your book about incurious Christians that you uh, have met time and time again, especially in your ministry. And when you were writing this book about 10 problems, not a single person asked you, Wow, 10 problems, huh? What are they?
2: Yeah, yeah. Uh, Well, they don't don't want to go there. I think Christians exist on a scale. There's the 10, the number 10, who, like William Lane Craig, that's it. will never budge. And then you slide down the scale, and maybe at the 5 level, there are folks who grew up with it. They attend church every Sunday. But they have doubts. World events. Events in life can, can really spark profound doubts. And some people don't rush in to say, well, I've got to overcome these doubts. Some people say, that's it. I really can't believe in this anymore. It's just too, too incredible, literally. One of the, one of the things I, I kind of wish could be done, but I don't think it could be done because it's so delicate, but the parents of all those kids who were murdered in Newtown, Connecticut, and that's coming up, it's a five-year anniversary in December. That is such a horrible, horrible experience to go through. How many of those people to begin with were believers, and how many of those people are still believers? Yeah. The example, I think I also have this in the book about the, the shooting in Dunblane, Scotland, which took place quite a few years before Newtown, where 16 school kids and their teacher were murdered by a gunman, and someone had left the bouquet of flowers with a teddy bear outside the school a few days later. And the comment was, uh, March 13th, 19-whatever-it-was, the day God overslept. That's not as harsh as Nietzsche's statement to God is dead, but it's a way of trying to deal with it. This is my father's world. We pray to our Heavenly Father who loves us, uh, who's supposed to be all-powerful. Well, how do these things happen? Well, God can't interfere with our free will. Well, now, wait a minute. This is an example I use in the book. That gunman, he could have had, why couldn't God have given him a flat tire on the way to the school?
0: Uh, Right, it happens all the time. Uh, You hear that shit all the time with Christians, like, well, there's not auto accident ahead. I I got a flat tire. God said, well, how does that interfere with your free will? Right? It works in that. In that uh, situation, why wouldn't it work in the other? Why, how, can't, uh, why, how about he just has a jammed gun? He's not a, you know, able to kill the. He's still carrying out his intention, but he's just not harming anybody.
2: I love Richard Carrier's example in his book, um, Why I Am Not a Christian. He actually had this example before the Newtown shooting. He said he, he, he has the theoretical scenario of a gunman walking into a school shoot kids he says why doesn't god change the bullets into popcorn
0: yeah right
2: (laughs) it would have been done at hogwarts i i I guarantee
0: absolutely (laughs)
2: transformation Um, class under professor (laughs) McGonagall. transform into popcorn
0: your first chapter is about the problem of evil and why uh all of the christian responses don't work it's um and free will again—that's a response which, even if you assume that free will is uh, the end all and be all, um, it doesn't—it doesn't even approach natural catastrophes such as, say, the hurricanes that are bearing down right now on us. Um, that has nothing to do with our free will. Uh, the earthquakes. There was just an earthquake in Mexico. It's nothing to do with our free will. Plagues. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Why isn't there any uh, differentiation between believing Christians and non-believing Christians as far as natural disasters? This is all stuff that you would expect on the hypothesis that God exists to happen. And, and the fact that nothing happens is exactly what you would expect on the hypothesis that God does not exist. And the fact that they even have to tie themselves into uh, knots and jump around to try to explain this is strong evidence that God does not exist.
2: Um, look to the Old Testament, you find that God parted the Red Sea. Um, look to the New Testament and find that Jesus stilled the storm. God has skills with water, in other okay. words. Water, exactly. water. So why doesn't <laughs> he step in? <laughs> is, it, is a hurricane him? Is it tsunami beyond him? But then, of course, right. we get the really, fully idiotic explanations. Well, God is using a storm. I think Kurt Cameron just came out and said, God, hurricanes are God's way of uh, creating on us a sense of awe and humbling us. But uh, it, these are all apo- apologetic dodges.
0: Yeah, That's easy to say if you're not the person whose home was just destroyed, and there's no flood insurance, and in their life is just entirely uh, turned end over end. Um, very easy to say from Kirk Cameron's mansion, right, <laughs> that uh, this is just a way of instilling on. it's just, uh, you know, uh, Loftus' is outsider test for faith, you know, you step outside of the uh, idiotic belief in Christianity, it just sounds uh, like moron talking, you know, right? <laughs> this is just uh Zeus's way of um instilling humility and, and telling us <laughs> that we're mortal. I mean it's just fucking ridiculous.
1: It's not just moronic. It's it's like especially like like Cameron or Joel Austin, it's it's sociopathic almost yeah. in a way. There's like no empathy, it seems like.
0: Yeah, Austin did a good job in showing um all the Christians, you know, how true Christians really act, right? <laughs> You're rich beyond dreams of avarice. He's worth something like 50, 60 million dollars. And uh, he has excuse after excuse after excuse why he didn't open the doors of his fucking mega church that was built on the backs of Christians donating to him. Right? And he had the doors locked during the flood. <laughs> Fuck you. Huh. Oh, God. Chuck, he, 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 says, he um,
1: eventually got around to it.
0: Yeah, I after, said, you know, after public shaming, <laughs> the city didn't ask me to open my doors. Then <laughs> to be be—he's got to be prodded by the city. It doesn't come naturally out of his Christian faith. It's uh, just disgusting. It's disgusting. There's your morality. There's your Christian morality.
2: I think in the book, I say that televangelism is the sewer of Christian poly- of uh, Christian piety.
0: Yeah, right. You also quoted H.L. Mencken when he said, uh, behind every evangelist is the wreck of a used car salesman. A hundred percent true. hundred percent true. Just disgusting. Uh, um, uh, so you are fully free and clear of all this stuff. What made you write a book? Well, um, I transferred into the business world. But, you know... <sighs>
2: This interest in the Bible was it was wired into my brain when I was in, a, a teenager. And you don't stop thinking about these things. And as the, the thinking went on and on, and then folks like Carl Sagan came along, and um, Timothy Ferris wrote a book called uh, Coming of Age in the Milky Way, which is a classic history of science book. And so my thoughts k- kept percolating, and you keep keep hearing these things, the things such as we've just been talking about, the idiotic things that are said in defense of theism. And so I just began making notes on, you know, what, what categories do these, these foolish statements fit into? And one of the favorite responses I get to my Facebook page, 10 Tough Problems, people say, only 10? Um, and... Uh, <laughs> And my response is there are far more than 10. But which would you rather read a book about the 10 tough problems or the 957 tough problems? Lists of 10 are very, try, you know, you, you go into Google, Google and just type, type in the 10, this or that, and you'll see endless lists, lists of 10. So I thought, let me just confine it to 10 and I'll sweep a lot of different problems into each category. I just finished reviewing uh, David Fitzgerald's book, Jesus, Mything in Action. Uh, that was my post today mm-hmm. on the Debunking Christianity blog. And at the end of that, I say, as he does a very thorough examination of the Gospels and their faults and their flaws. And it's not just 10 tough problems. It's a thousand tough problems. So I, my thinking continued to germinate. I continued writing things down, making notes, making uh, notes. I made a start on the book, uh, well, maybe seven or eight years ago. Uh, I was very busy in my job, and I didn't get much done on it, but then I really began to speed up on it. I found the title I wanted, and then it was much easier to to arrive at what those those 10 topics would be. And my challenge to Christians is simply, I think Christianity is massively falsified by these 10 tough problems. In fact, I don't think it can withstand. Um, I mean, you might be able to defend one of them. <clears throat> you might be able to agree that Paul was a nut job. Christianity still survives, but <laughs> but the, the but you know the overwhelming weight of these arguments, the weight is there. The but of course the the reluctance of Christians to really study their own faith, that reluctance is profound. But I hold out hope. I think it was Greta Christina who who was at a an atheist conference, and she asked for a show of hands, how many people here used to be church-going Christians? And there was a huge show of hands. So I don't buy the argument that if you weren't reasoned into Christianity, you can't be reasoned out of it. Most people were not reasoned into Christianity. It was just in, in the drinking water, as I say, when I grew up in Indiana. But you can be reasoned out of it. <clears throat> and I think that's one of the reasons that there's such a popularity with um uh, with the, the atheist books that have been published. I mean by no means do they come close to selling as many copies as Christian devotional books. You walk into any Barnes and Noble and look at the religion section and you'll find, you'll find devotional books you know, by the hundreds and then the tiny section on atheism. I go into the drugstore in my, in my na- neighborhood and there in the pharmacy department is a rack of books, Christian oh, devotional
0: books. <laughs> they sell.
2: Talk about seeking victims, uh, people <laughs> showing up to get their medications, and here's another form of drug on the, on the book rack. <laughs> um,
0: yeah, I think we're, um, we're making a difference, uh, especially you guys who are publishing books out there and really taking it to the Christians. Uh, this idea, um, the God of the, their imaginations, the Jesus of their imaginations, it's, it, Christianity really makes sense if uh, you don't think about it too hard. Right, you love everybody. Uh, Jesus was crucified for our sins and conquered death, and now we can be resurrected. Uh, great, it sounds fantastic. You actually read this stuff, and, and that all goes away. You know, you have a, a Jesus in the New Testament who is a, um, at the very least, a massive asshole, and at <laughs> worst, a just actively evil person who is advocating uh, infinite suffering. Right, in a, in a lake of fire. Uh, when the suffering.
2: Yeah, he believed, apparently, into the business about eternal uh, punishment, uh, as did Paul. What does that say about morality?
0: Right. How uh, could you do anything in 70, 80, 100 years to uh, warrant an infinite amount of pain?
2: Again, Christians are not motivated to study their own faith. My favorite quote is Mark Twain. The best fear for Christianity is reading the Bible. Right. He said it's not the things in the Bible I don't understand that trouble me. It's the things in the <laughs> Bible I don't understand. That
0: Absolutely. That,
2: that's why the uh, the bibliography that's on the book's website. I wanted that in the book itself, but the editor told me, he said the book is already too long. He didn't want to add the bibliography, which is a blessing as it turned out. So I put the bibliography on my On the website for the book, instead of calling it bibliography, I decided to call it the Spiritual Christianity Library. That has a lot more appeal and a lot more punch than the word bibliography.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And I wonder, that is a big problem, is how do we motivate Christians to read this stuff? Because, uh, I mean, the stuff is out there, and it has been out there for probably hundreds of years at this point. Uh, sar- for me, the sarcasm, is to, one, it's an expression of my frustration, but two, is to kind of shake people out of their comfort zone, right? Uh, how is it possible that they're ridiculing me? How is it possible that someone thinks Jesus is a dick? And I'm, I'm hoping that that's, that's one method that's effective, the, the sarcasm is just kind of shaking people up. But the, the benefit that we do have lots of voices in the atheist community, as you mentioned in your book, that some are kinder, gentler, uh, Sagan was uh, extremely popular. Kind of a gateway drug, maybe, to atheism. <laughs>
2: it, you know, kinder, gentler, yeah, Sagan was that. Um, and he never came out outright and said, I'm an atheist. Right. I think he at the time that that would not fly. But he prepared the ground. He, he softened up the market for people who were more aggressive. And I forget who who has pointed it out, but the books by Harris and Hitchens and uh, Dawkins came in the wake of September 11th. Yeah. Because this is a pretty brutal demonstration of what religion can do. And so um, I think no matter how much they try, Christians cannot overcome the problem of suffering, egregious human suffering. They may have their excuses, they may have their apologies, they try their best to get God off the hook, but the apologies don't work. <clears throat> you can't have an all-powerful, all good, all loving God who allows the world to be in such horrible condition. Yeah. One of the things I ask people, just think about how many millions of people have suffered throughout their lives in mental hospitals, right? Long before there were medications to help deal with it. This is massive human suffering why
0: right and the only alleviation of that suffering is through science that's it it's the only alleviation uh walk through a a pediatric cancer ward and you see all this um uh these innocent children through no fault of their own are in tremendous pain and facing you know staring down the the barrel of their own mortality
2: well you know the best comeback on that was, or the best statement on that, was the Stephen Fry video in which he was asked, if there is a God and you have to confront him at the Curly Curly gate, Gates, what would you say? And Stephen Fry said, bone cancer in children. What's that all about? Yeah. What's that all about?
0: Yeah.
2: It would really behoove Christians to welcome evolution with open arms because I forget what the figure that Dawkins has given 2000 or 3000 genetic diseases don't you want to blame evolution on that instead of god <laughs> think
0: about well, it well they can still blame satan you know they have a, a a handy scapegoat and and if you bring evolution into it you are opening that crack you are forced to take at least something in probably all of genesis uh at least the first couple chapters Metaphorically, if you open up that crack, very, very dangerous.
2: When they bring up Satan, my response is: Why does God allow Satan (laughs) any power at all?
0: Yeah, they would be they would be better off allowing Satan to be uh, equally powerful (laughs) as God, right? As an explanation as to why he's still around.
2: In my chapter four, I believe about the. absurdities of western monotheism I talk about uh, there could be any a uh, number of different kinds of things as an atheist for the sake of argument I might say okay let's agree that God exists now what kind of God would that be Out of the Bible oh wait a minute how do you make that connection how do you make that connection uh, and there's so much evil in the world maybe God is an evil God
0: right yeah or, he certainly uh, seems to be, at, le- at the very least, lazy.
2: Or, or unaware. Another alternative uh, yeah. theory of God would be the God who made the universe is, uh, was uh, obsessed with the big picture. Planets, solar systems, galaxies, and isn't even aware that life may be percolating on billions of planets. <laughs> he, he, he isn't aware of that. He's just aware of galaxies, solar systems, planets. And if you said to this god, by the way, there are a lot of creatures down there on that planet who are singing songs to you every day, that god would say, get out of here. You've got to be kidding me. There are, there are creatures on those planets?
0: You, you certainly have to give up either his omnipotence or his omnibenevolence. Uh, he can't be both for evil to exist no matter what your counter-argument is.
2: I mean, but they don't drill down to these problems. They don't take them seriously. They don't, they don't question what they believe. They're not curious, as we've said before.
0: Yeah, part of the solution to that, I think, is just uh, increasing the visibility of atheism, which is what the, bi- the huge step forward for atheism 2.0, or the new atheists, uh, is that we're just more visible.
2: And I think that's one reason why the polls show that the number of nuns, you know, in the S,
0: yes, is on the rise. Yes, the number
2: of people who are who are saying they don't have any, well, it's not, they don't have religious beliefs, they don't have religious affiliations anymore. Right, and we all know that the mainstream Protestant denominations are are slipping, uh, unfortunately, at the expense of um, of the evangelicals. And one of the figures that I point out in my book is truly scary: that by some projections, by the year twenty twenty five. It's only eight years away, guys. There will be one billion, that's with a B, one billion Pentecostals in the world.
0: That seems impossible. <laughs> most, of that
2: growth, most of that growth is south of the equator, <clears throat> and much of that growth has taken place at the expense of the Catholic Church.
0: Ah, uh, let me see.
2: But, uh, you know, don't get too confident about uh, Christianity dying away anytime soon. But I think of the educated Western, well quote-unquote educated yeah, western right. countries i don't know right. how much education goes on in this country with the election of <laughs> donald trump uh but but um we're winning here and there we're making incremental pro- progress and we just got to keep at it
0: yeah and i'd make a plea i'd make a plea to atheists everywhere to come out identify yourself as an atheist not as an agnostic not as a nun not that you're just not affiliated with any organized religion, but you you are an atheist when when neighbors and family members and friends uh, can see that there's an atheist and you're not actively eating babies and <laughs> raping and pillaging and uh, you know, if you just confine those activities to your own home, that then um, I think people will will become more accepted as a, a not only an option, which I think is where all the nuns are coming from. Right. But uh, full members of society.
2: Some people said use the template of a gay community. Yeah. The importance of being out, the importance of of coming out of the closet and saying who you are and let people get used to it. And I think that's where has worked phenomenally well. One friend of mine was saying he didn't think that the new Republican totalitarianism would be able to reverse same sex marriage. I'm not so sure about that but now it's such a common thing and people in all communities and it's, it's harder and harder to demonize gay people. Right. And it will be harder and harder to demonize atheists if we're just frank about it, open about it. And I am relentless in my atheism on my personal Facebook page as well as the page for my book.
0: Right. Absolutely. That's the only way we're going to make progress. And I agree with you. I'm very, uh, I'm very uh, afraid the Republicans own nearly three quarters of uh, the governorships, uh, and and I think houses and, and senates uh, in this at the state level. Which means if they want to make a constitutional amendment, uh, they're very close to being able to do that.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I think it would it would trigger a massive wave, but we'd have to we would have to then do the same thing. We'd have to have three quarters of the uh, Houses, Senates, governorships and the state level to overturn that amendment. Mm. It is very frightening where we are. And I hope that this is the last gasp of uh, this privileged, white, uh, Protestant America. Um, But, you know, I keep thinking uh, we could be standing on the edge of of some dark ages here, too. We could go uh, a thousand years backwards.
2: I don't think... Trump represents and the whole regime now represents a last gasp. Um, I think your term we're in for the dark ages may very well be true but we may have passed a point of no return because this election really illustrated uh, the failure of education in America and with the full assault now on science education wasn't it yesterday I read that that Trump said that there are millions of planets in our solar system. What? (laughs)
0: Oh, my God. I also heard that the uh, head of the EPA said that now is not the time to talk about global warming (laughs) and climate change. (laughs) What, because of the Uh, hurricanes? Because of all the hurricanes, yeah. Uh, Well, that's standard,
1: Chuck. You know, we have a gun massacre. We shouldn't talk about gun control. Climate disaster. (laughs) This isn't the time for climate change, ducks.
0: Don't politicize this disaster. Right.
1: And then you bring it up uh, later. Yeah. It's like, why are you bringing this up? Why, why are we talking about
0: this? Donald Trump has
2: announced plans to send um, Betsy DeVos to North Korea to set back their rocket program.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I concur. It's a, that's the a first agreement I think uh, I've had with Donald Trump. That's <laughs> a good idea. Yeah. Go ahead, send her. Let's, let's uh, get uh, Betsy DeVos in charge of education in North Korea. <laughs> Great <laughs> idea. Any more questions about my book? Uh, what about you, Matt? Do you have any questions? I have no questions,
1: only answers because I have his book <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> All right, the book is called Ten Tough Problems in Christian Thought and Belief by David Madison. David. It's been a pleasure uh, having you on. Tell us how we can buy this book.
2: Uh, it's you know, just uh, search Amazon. My name David Madison as in Madison Avenue, and type in 10 Tough Problems. Um, also, the website for the book is very easy to find, www.10toughproblems.com, all run together. Either it's 10 spelled out or 10 the number, 10toughproblems.com, and you'll see an overview of the book, the chapter summaries, But many places on that website where you click, you're taken right to the uh, Amazon page. Um, Excellent. And it's very helpful if people like the book to write an Amazon review, because the more reviews I get, the the higher the book goes into Amazon rankings. Right now I think there are sixty-two or sixty-three reviews. So I'm aiming for a lot more.
1: Even if it's a even if it's a bad review, it helps it rank? Or is uh, it three good reviews?
2: <laughs> a bad review reduces the number of stars. And I don't want no. that. Well,
1: I've, I guess there's just Ancient. a couple of books I've elevated in
0: Amazon's ranking unintentionally <laughs> by doing bad reviews. You can't have a bad review. This is a fantastic book. Not this and, book. Uh, I'm talking are about you, what is truth. Are you? <laughs> are you also? Uh, you're also on John Loftus's uh, website, right? Yes.
2: Uh, Where Debunking Christianity. I do a post every. Writing, my two favorite titles two or three months ago were "Who the Hell Hired Matthew to Write a Gospel," and and also "Where Is the Virgin Mary When We Really Need Her?" Uh, in which I talk about she should be popping up when priests are about to rape children. Forget about appearing on toasts and making statues weep. You know, go for an upgrading yeah. job in your job description. Um, go where you're really needed. Um, yeah. Also, one of my posts was the New Testament's biggest lie, in which I talk about the ascension of Jesus into heaven. Um, that's the cover up. We don't actually know what happened to Jesus. So,
0: yeah, that's a great that's One of my favorite chapters in your book, the uh, resurrection and ascension. You know, what good is a, well, I think one of your um, seminary professors said, "What what good is a forty day? Because because he's floating up into heaven, right?" And okay. uh, Yeah, we know that uh, when he ascends up into heaven, heaven isn't physically located in space. So um, my parents would say that he floated up in heaven and then just shifted dimensions into space. But then why float into heaven? Why can't you just like beam out on the ground, right? That in that case, and floating up is, is a lie. You know, or, or a theatrical performance, I suppose. Oh, it's or, theatrical. If there's any it's difference. It's all
1: theatrics, Jack.
0: <laughs> if there's any difference between a theatrical performance and a lie. I come uh, back See, question. How do
2: you know that? He beamed himself up. What is the data? Right. What, what is the reliable, verifiable data
0: for your... And why, why float up above the clouds and then away where no one can see you. I just I don't well
2: know, Paul know. believed that the son of man was going to be coming through the clouds so that's the importance of clouds in the ninth chapter of Mark uh, God speaks to Jesus in a cloud so clouds are important things
1: like a good <laughs> deity knows how to make a good entrance and a great exit too. <laughs> that's right that's but the why people that who wrote,
2: <laughs> but the people who wrote the New Testament had no concept that the earth was rotating. They had no concept that the earth was in orbit around the sun. They had no concept that the sun is orbiting the galactic center. So there was no problem with Jesus just floating up there.
0: Sure, Uh, he's going to heaven, it's above us. Yeah,
2: But now, when we know what we know about the cosmos, that story is obviously not true. Now, it may be strong to call it a lie, they weren't they didn't think they were lying but in the end it is a lie because it just didn't happen they made it up that's what we, that's what we mean by the word lie and so right. jesus stayed on earth well if he stayed on earth you have only got two choices jesus floated up out of the atmosphere or he re- remained on earth in which case he died again take your choice
0: <laughs> right
2: right yeah, today Or his body is somewhere in Palestine. All right,
1: I have I have one final question before we go. Okay, since you did get married, where where did you get your cake? Did you get a cake?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Was there an issue getting a cake? Difficulty obtaining a cake.
2: Uh, I think our the wedding in California because we were so far away. It was a very small party. My daughter and her husband and her in laws. And we got married on a, a riverboat in in Sacramento, and so we just had a small dinner. Uh, but in New York, in New York City, come on, there's no issue with with gay people getting cakes. <laughs> you have to it's just out. in
0: Colorado, Matt. No, you, have Colorado. To,
2: you have to wander out in the, you have to wander out into Trumpistan to um, find um, <laughs> objections to making <laughs> wedding cakes for gay people.
1: Well,
0: it's a form of expression. So. <laughs> well, I tell you what, it, it was great having you. Are you working on anything in the future? Any any future books?
2: You should ask. It's one that will not be a bestseller. The, the New Testament <laughs> author who who pisses me off the most is the Apostle Paul. Uh, in fact, at the on the John Loftus blog, I've been doing a uh, a series of uh, posts on each of the chapters and. Paul's letter to the Romans. Uh, I'm up up to about chapter 10 and 11 out of 16. But I'm going to start working on what I call, the title is, the working title would be God is Wrath, a secular commentary on Paul's letter to the Romans. Uh, Oh, yeah. Now, um, very few people know what the hell the book of Romans is. This is not going to be a bestseller. (laughs) This is going to (laughs) be... I' going to have a very low Amazon sales ranking if I ever get it done. By the way, I'm 75 years old this, this month, so for me to start a mammoth project like that, uh, I've got to have a lot of faith, right?
0: Uh, i very optimistic.
2: <laughs> that's one thing. Uh, that's one. You know, I have to keep my mind active. It's very good discipline to write a, a post every week for the Loftus uh, website. So uh, I enjoy that very very much. Just you know, and I've got the stack of books that I'm working my way through, you just got to keep reading, 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 reading in this field. So that's what I do. I I have a busier life now than I did when when I worked.
0: So you're, you're not real. you're only semi-retired.
2: Exactly. I retired from my professional life in 1971. And then I really sped up the process of getting this book finished. And now I was just so thrilled when John Loftus invited me to be a contributing writer on his on his blog. So that keeps him very busy. So excellent. Um, I just excellent. Keep working at it.
0: Well, it was great having you on. Uh, when you get that book finished, let us know and we'll have you on again.
2: Thank you, guys.
0: So Wonderful. Much. Thanks a ton. I thank you. I'll save you again.